read this morning from the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the first 13 verses in Jesus' name. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. This epistle to the Ephesians is kind of a unique letter in the New Testament because um, each epistle or each letter that was written, they were written to different congregations and those congregations were different groups and with different experiences and there's a marked difference between the way Paul writes to those Christians that were in Rome or especially the way he writes to those that were in Galatia the Christians in Ephesus were not entangled as in Galatia with a conflict between following the Old Testament law and wor- form of worship and the new new form of worship, the new covenant which was given in Christ Jesus so they didn't have to be talked to the way the Galatians to distinguish between that which is of the law and that which is of grace. But it seemed like this whole letter to the Ephesians, what Paul wanted to do with these Ephesians is to is to establish their hearts firmly and establish their faith firmly in that place where it would be founded upon the rock, that rock which is Christ. And it was as if The seed had already been planted and the flower was already growing and he wanted to nurture that bloom so that it would blossom fully and that they would understand amongst themselves 
now that they have become followers of Christ and children of God, what their positions and status should be, how they should walk in this life, and how they should deal with one another as the children of God, where their faith should be rooted and grounded in. He had written in the in the previous chapter, in the 17th verse, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He wanted to establish their hearts because he knew that that wherever the work of God is done, there is the enemy, the devil, the enemy of the soul who is going to come in and he is going to tear up and to destroy and to rend. And he wanted them to be established to the point where they would be able to war against that and to distinguish between that which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit. He began this this chapter the way he did the previous chapter and he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord and in the third chapter he said for this cause I Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. So Paul considered himself to be a prisoner And later on we read in this text that he ascended up on high and he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, speaking of Christ. There is a lot written in the the scripture about prisons and prisoners and captivity and liberty. And a prison is such a thing that, as we all know, no one wants to be sentenced to prison no one wants to go to jail because in that prison you are locked into a cell everything you do day by day is regimented you are watched you are released you have somebody who has power and authority over you all at all times you have no freedom you can't go where you want to go do what you want to do see what you want to see You're bound by these walls and you have to function within this kind of an environment. No one wants to be there. Every living creature wants liberty and freedom to move, to be able to be that by themselves sometimes, to be able to go where their own footsteps might lead them. And yet every one of us, because of sin, Every one of us has our own prison. And Paul knew what this prison was when he spoke of his own experience that he didn't live the life that he wanted to live. Many of the things he didn't want to do, he did. And he says, yet not me, but sin that dwelleth in me. But that prison that we are in 
that prison which is part of each one of our lives and not only are we all common have uh, are we all common prisoners by the sin that fell upon all men through the transgression in the garden of eden but each one of us individually has our own prison in our own natures there's some things that we'd like to do and we can't do there's some places we'd like to go and we can't go we are all restricted by walls in our own nature. There's sometimes maybe you'd want to give, go in and give somebody a hug and you can't give them a hug because you're not a hugger and that's your prison. You've built that wall around yourself that you don't hug people and that's, so you can't give them a hug and you kind of envy people that do. There might be, a group of people you'd like to go over and talk to them and associate with them but you can't because part of your prison is that you can only associate with certain kind of people at certain times and you can't associate with everybody so those prison walls bar you from going there if you have an unbelieving neighbor maybe and there's a death in their family or some calamity you'd like to stop there and kind of say offer your sympathies or show your love somehow to them but you can't do it because that's part of your prison walls you have a hard time going up to a stranger and knocking on the door and opening the door and showing any love or compassion toward them we all have our prison walls each one of us as an individual as well as that prison that surrounds all mankind. But that prison was made a prisoner. That captivity was made captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even that prison that we have around us has become the prisoner of Christ. Paul was in a prison one time in his life he was led and guided he had no choice when he went about supposedly doing the service of God and persecuting the church he had to do that because that was the prison walls that he was brought up within that was his heritage from the time he was a youth the service of God to him was a preserving of a way of life preserving of a lifestyle which was pure and he diligently went about obeying his master and fulfilling the requirements of his prisoner, his captors, until the day that he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And when he met Christ on that road, and he saw that bright light and he heard that voice, he had only heard about God. He had heard about this Jesus, but he had never met him. He had never seen him. But Christ revealed himself according to the will of his Father. God had prepared Paul from the time he was, before he was born into this world. He was a chosen vessel unto God. God watched him through all his life and actions 
until that time he was able to say to his son, okay, go and reveal yourself now to him. He's a chosen vessel. I have many things that he must do for me. I have many places to send him. And when that happened, he went through an experience whereby he was loosed from the captivity that had been his all his life and he became another prisoner and as we read here he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ what's it like to be in a prison and to be a prisoner of someone where you would you like nothing better in a marriage if there is love between the husband and wife and if there is a devotion between the husband and wife one toward another they are glad to be prisoners to each other if there is no love if there is no devotion between the two then that marriage becomes a prison that's oppressive and the husband or the wife looks around the world around them and says, I could be having fun. I could be enjoying myself. Life would be so much better if I wasn't bound and restricted the way I am. And that has become the most common condition in marriages in this land now where most of the marriages end up where one or the other frees themselves from that prison and being a prisoner of that mate so they can go out and they can really enjoy life and they don't know that they don't know that it's not marriage it wasn't that marriage and that union that held them captive and but they were obeying a master they are in a prison and they were obeying their warden and going where he sends them to go and his desire for them is not happiness and liberty and freedom but it's depression and, and agony and eventually eternal death it is not oppressive to be a prisoner of a relationship where love is the bond that binds you together and it was not oppressive for Paul to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ it was the greatest joy that he could have in his life and in his heart to say that Jesus is my prison he is the one that I am bound to and the greatest hope in his life is that he would never be severed from him because that prison that he was in was the only true liberty that there was on the face of this earth or in eternity. Being a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ was being a prison prisoner of liberty, of freedom, of peace, of joy. So that wasn't a... He was announcing this not as a complaint but he was announcing this as a 
not as a boast either, but but just as a fact that that he was very satisfied with and very content to be in. And he then beseeched these Ephesians in this place to be worthy of the vocation wherewith they are they were called in with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering forbearing one another in love. What was the vocation for you little boys and girls a vocation is a it's a job. Everyone has a vocation sometimes if your dad's a mason or a carpenter or a mechanic or whatever, that's his vocation, that's his job. And Paul was telling him to that they walk worthy of the job that they've been called to do. Be worthy of it. Be fit for the job that you're called to do. And these Ephesians, what was their vocation? What was their job and what was their task? And is it different than ours? When Jesus came to this earth, he says he came not to be served but to serve. He came not to receive but to give. He came not to take but to give. And those that are his followers and those that choose to be the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, a disciple is a follower, then they must also agree to walk the same walk that he has walked and to have the same purpose and goals that he has. And that purpose and that goal was to be a servant. And the vocation, the job that Christians are called to do is to become servants. When there is a lot of strife, the strife has always been over mastery, not over servitude. Before the disciples knew what Jesus came to do and where his kingdom was going to be, when they still thought that he had an earthly kingdom that he was going to establish, when they still thought that he was going to free the Jews from the oppression of Roman servitude, then they were all eager and watching one another. Who's going to be the chief honcho here? Who's going to be the big cheese and who's going to be the little cheese? And they even got the families involved so that the mother came up and says, uh, Lord, when your kingdom is all established, uh, can you put one son on one side, one of my sons on one side of you and the other on the other side? And she was just picturing in her mind what a day that would be when she walked into that palace and and there, there sat James and John, one on the other, each side of the king. And the king is sitting there with his flowing robe and his golden crown and his scepter with all power and majesty and the whole world is in awe. And there's my boys. Must have been quite a thing when Jesus knew what the picture was in her mind. And he knew what his kingdom was going to be. She pictured him sitting on a golden throne with a golden crown and he saw himself reigning from the cross of Calvary as the songwriter has said with a crown of thorns pressed on his brow. 
No, in my kingdom, it's not given for one to sit on my right hand or on my left hand. When he was on his crown, there was two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And I wonder when James and John saw later on and when their mother saw later on where his throne really was, if she thanked God that my sons didn't have to be there, that they didn't have to be there. When we are striving for mastery, the one that is closest to accomplishing what he is striving to do becomes the envy and the target of everyone else. Everyone is after the champion. Everyone is out to beat the one that is best. And that's what our life for the most part is. We pick out the best and we're going to beat them. And that's what we are as human beings and that's our natural life. But the vocation that Christ has called us to is to be servants. And the one who is the lowliest of servants, the other servants have never looked at him with envy and says, Oh, that I could be that lowly. Oh, that I could serve in such a lowly status as that one. There is no competition in the vocation that Christ has called us to. There is no competition in servitude to see who could be the lowliest of servants. And this is what God wants us to be. In meekness, is there anything more foreign to any of us than that word, meekness? Lowliness of mind long-suffering and forbearing those are some, these are some of the things that are most the most oppressive and distasteful things that we can experience in our life long-suffering forbearing they're nice as empty words not applied to a real life situation but when you have to be forbearing because somebody has tried you Somebody has really gotten under your skin and when you want to clench your fist and get back at them and your tongue is ready to spit fire, then God says, in meekness and lowliness, with long-suffering and forbearance, serve one another. And our flesh rebels with every fiber that's in it. And yet this is where God calls us. It is not a pleasant thing for us for any of us to walk according to the the fruits of the spirit it's not it's not a pleasant thing for us in the flesh to to serve god we want to dominate we want to be the best we want to be on top all the time we want to have the last word and and yet jesus wants us to be worthy of the vocation. He wants us to be worthy of being servants one toward another. And when I say servants one toward another, I don't just mean within the confines of the church and our social group, but servants one toward another where, wherever we journey in this life. It's a hard thing. It really is. It's hard for any of us. You little boys and girls, when you're, when you're just real little and just learning to talk, What's one of the hardest words 
are some of the hardest words to learn to say. Did you have any trouble learning to say "shut up"? Was that hard? Is that hard to say? Is it hard to say? Did you have any trouble learning to say "gimme"? That's mine. Does anybody have to teach you to say "gimme"? That's mine. But when somebody says, "Okay, now I want you to say please." That's pretty hard to say, isn't it? To say please. Or to say thank you. Those are hard words to say. The hardest words to say, the real hard words to say is, I'm sorry. Those are real hard to say. Alright? And that's because those words, please, thank you, I'm sorry, are all words that go with people that are meek, that are servants. It's, they're all polite words. They're words of humility. Gimme, shut up, get out of here. That's mine. Those are all words that are aggressive. They're easy to say because it comes naturally. Nobody even has to teach us. We learn them all by ourselves very easily. We try to teach you little boys and girls to say nice words like that, I'm sorry and thank you and please and excuse me and and we try to teach you to say it and we as moms and dads as grown ups we're trying to learn to say those words our whole life. We never really we never really learn to say them when we should as often as we should. But we want you to, and we want ourselves to, and that's what God wants us to learn. That's part of being meekness. That's part of meekness and lowliness, serving one another. There's a... It's strange, but the things that we are most afraid of, the places in life that we're most afraid of, really, if we could get there, would give us the greatest liberty. People are afraid of Jesus. They are afraid of Christianity for that reason that it, it, it doesn't lend, Christianity doesn't lend itself to, to what our natural inclination is. Christianity doesn't encourage the, the following of Christ does not encourage us to become the best and the greatest. Many people are afraid of Christ because it's going to take away all their pleasure. All their fun is going to be gone. How can you have fun when there's so many restrictions? How can you have fun when you can't just go out and do anything you want to do? It's a threat to us. And it's a deceit of the devil to make it into a threat because coming to know Christ and being his follower is really the only place of liberty. Recently I was telling somebody I remembered when I was I was living at Semi and Annie's and he had a lot of chickens and every day we had to go feed them. And any any of you when you you know when you walk in a chicken coop the chickens all scatter. And there's a big empty circle around you wherever you go because they all run away from you. 
And I went one time into this chicken coop and and there was a little chicken in there and it was like that when whenever there was a runt, a smaller chicken, the bigger chickens would peck on them and as soon as they drew blood, all the rest would jump on them and, and the poor thing would spend its whole life just hiding and cowering and running from place to place and, and here it is just surrounded by hundreds of chickens that want nothing else but to just keep pecking at it. You can't think of a more horrible existence. There's no peace for it. Anytime, the only peace it gets is at night when all the chickens are sleeping. Well, anyway, I walked into this chicken coop, and as usual, all the chickens scattered, but this one little chicken came running toward me. And it stayed right next to my feet. And that was the one and only time in my life that I ever remember that happening and we dealt with thousands and thousands of chickens through the years but that's the one and only time that I remember it happening and and it really amazed me that this little chicken and it didn't have hardly any feathers on it was all pecked clean and but there was something in its in its instinct in that little pea brain that it had in its desperation that told it that this is the only place where it can go to find any peace when all the other chickens were afraid of me, this one, by instinct, knew that I'm afraid of the rest more than than him. And the other chickens are all staying away when he comes in, so I'm going to go where he is. So he came there, and and uh, I looked, and he was a little run chicken, so I said, well... Maybe if I put him out with the little, ch the smaller chickens out on the range, he will be actually bigger than them and they won't be picking on him. So I picked him up and I took him out and I put him up, out on the range and, and he became kind of my pet. Every time I went there, he was the first one. He'd run up to me and he'd jump up on my lap and eat out of my hand and, and I thought that's a, it's kind of a strange thing. It's kind of a, uh, that this, all the rest of those birds, they, they felt that they better stay away from me because I'm a danger. But there was one in their, in this desperation, it found out because of his desperation that I wasn't a danger. I was actually kind of a nice guy. And I just, I was talking to someone about that and I thought, I wonder how many feel that way about God and about Jesus that they, that they run away from him. When he comes in, they they scatter and they run away from him, and they don't understand that that's their only refuge. And if they should run toward him and be close to him, well, if I can have a little compassion toward a chicken, certainly Christ has a lot of compassion toward toward men. And if they would run to him then they would find a refuge. That find where their enemies, they can find peace from their enemies. And they'd take them out the way I did and put them out in a place. And this chicken, uh, when I brought him out in a range, he became big and fat and healthy and full-feathered and he almost waddled like a duck. He was, he got so much to eat because he was the biggest one. And there are so many, so many things in our life that are contrary to what we what our instincts are and if there's anything that's contrary 
It's the worship of God. Those things that people think are going to bring them unhappiness and sorrow are the very, the only things that can bring them peace and, and to bring them joy. We think that by, by becoming the biggest and the greatest and the strongest and the wisest and having the last word, that that is going to really make us feel good and we are going to be something. And we don't realize the, the great satisfaction, the joy that even Apostle Paul here had when he, he was able to become the lowest and the weakest and the poorest and become the servant, become a servant of servants for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be the same way. It's not, we're not going to get to heaven and say, like James and John, that now we can sit on the throne. Now we're here and we can really reign with Jesus. It says that when the crowns are placed upon our head, we will take them off and we will throw them at his feet and we will sing praises to his name. There will be eternal joy in heaven that we can be there as the bride of Christ, as the eternal prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not be striving and rejoicing because we've become something big, but we'll be rejoicing because he found us worthy to even be there, to even be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. And he wants us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace very foreign to us, very strange. Peace is not something that we nurture. We go through our whole life creating confrontations and challenges because uh, in our flesh we're a lot more comfortable with confrontations and challenges than we are with peace. And he tells them and tells us that there are not, even on this earth and in heaven, there's not a, there's not going to be a whole bunch of different, different groups and different statuses and, but there's going to be one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, and there is, is one God. There are different religions, there are different lifestyles. There are many different people. There's different cultures. There are so many different diverse things on the face of this earth. And each one is unique in itself. And each one, because that's the way they're brought up and that's the way they taught, they, they say this is how it should be. Even our food, the food that we eat, if we went to some of these foreign countries, I remember reading how this one guy went down to New Guinea or wherever it was and they offered him, they, they really wanted to feed him the best so they wrapped up a, they grow these, they take fly larvae and put it in a log and they grow these slugs, slimy slugs and they wrap, wrap them up in a leaf and they toast them and they gave it to this guy because they really wanted to honor him, give him the best they had. I mean, we'd go down there with gag if they gave us a, roasted slug to eat and yet they feel that that's the best food that they could possibly consume. We're so different. Everybody in the world is so different and our values are so different and what one thinks is great, the other one thinks is horrible and a lot of that creeps into our religion 
when I say religion as opposed to our worship of God, because religions are a social thing. As I repeated what that one fellow said, that religion, religion is our, is the suit we wear. And that, that relationship that we have with God is what's underneath the suit. Religion is when we reach up to God and our relationship with God is when He reaches down to each one of us. We have these diversions, we have these differences, and we can't see past them. But there is one God in heaven, there is one faith, there is one hope, there is one baptism, there is one Christ, there is one, one love of God that covers all. And that is what we should promote. We should promote, and I don't know how you deal with people, but like one fellow, uh, well, not only one, but different ones that I've talked to, and I can only encourage them one way. Their life is messed up. They don't know which way to turn. I tell them, pray, ask God to help you. I says, I haven't found any other way. I don't know the solutions. I don't know the answers. I says, ask God to help you. And I say, I know he's listening. And he said, well, you know, one fellow says, well, maybe we need to go to church, you know. I said, well, no, you don't, you don't need religion. I said, you need Christ. You need Christ. Your family needs Christ. That's the only thing that's going to help you. Churches might kind of give you a solace. Religion gives you kind of a band-aid. But Christ gives you healing. And that's not to say that Christ isn't involved in religion. But religion isn't Christ. We don't, we can't come into this church and worship. You can't come here and say that, well, I'm gonna go on the going road and today I'm gonna go worship God. You can't do that. God isn't subject to you or me. If you worship God, you worship Him right inside here. And if you weren't worshiping Him when you were driving here, or if you weren't worshiping Him at home, you're not gonna worship Him here. They that worship Him, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's part of our life. It's an everyday thing. It's not just a religious ritual that we do. When we come together, it's a communion of the individual worship that we have in our heart. We can't create a worship by coming together, but we can worship together with the worship that we already have in our heart. If we all love Jesus, then it's a pleasure to have communion with each other and to relate of that because we understand each other that there is a love of Christ within us. He gave different gifts to different ones for the perfecting of the saints, not for gifts are not in any way related to making us worthy to be worthy before God knowledge puffeth up it says but wisdom edifieth he gave his gifts for the perfecting of the saints and the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ that's the only reason that's the only benefit that gifts are the greatest gift you know John the Baptist had a great great gift he had a fantastic gift Jesus said of him, of men born of women, there is no none greater than John the Baptist. He was Elijah. If you can receive it, he said, this 
is Elijah who was for to come. Elijah came in the form of John the Baptist and he preached repentance powerfully. But what did that mean compared to John being a child of God? What were all the gifts that he had and all the name and status that he had compared to this? That Christ was his Savior. Christ was that Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, including John's own sins. There is no gift on the face of this earth that is worthy to be compared to that gift of being God's child. That gift of the spirit of adoption whereby we can believe that God has committed his self to us to keep us as his children and to give us whatever we need to go through whatever he has to go through for our sake. That's the greatest gift that can be given to anyone. Don't ever covet spiritual gifts because they are nothing in and of themselves. They're only for the benefit of the of the church and the congregation. Thank God for the gift of salvation. Thank God often for just this, that, that you can be his child, that Jesus is your brother, that Jesus is your friend, that Jesus has betrothed himself to you that one day he will be your bridegroom. Thank God that you have received not only the invitation to the wedding, but you've received the wedding garment as a free gift also. You've been made worthy for no other reason but the love that God has in his heart for you as a father has for his child. In Jesus' name, amen. Should I say grace? Let's thank God for the food, the natural things that he has prepared for us in all things. Father, we, we want to always have thankful hearts before you. And Father, we would desire that we would always receive all the things of this life as being from your hand. But Father, from my own experience, and I'm sure that you know from the hearts of others that, that sometimes we we tend to think that, well, we kind of got these things for ourselves and, and that it was our own doing. Remind us, Father, that all things that we have on this earth are borrowed and all things that we partake of are gifts from your loving hand. Father, thank you for the for not only the food that you have given us to partake of, but thank you for the for the hearts of those that are willing to serve. And Father, may we all have that heart that we desire to serve one another and find joy in this. We ask these things in the name of your Son Jesus and for the glory of his eternal name. Amen. The lost uh, articles department that have been given to me and that we have include an electronic Bible, a woman's watch, a camera, and a Chrysler Corporation Mopar key. So if anybody's lost any of these articles, I have them. The church has also lost some articles that include uh, a whole pile of folding chairs, if anybody's borrowed folding chairs and have not returned them to the church, please do so. 
There's a meal served for everyone downstairs. All are invited. And we'll continue the service after at 2 o'clock this afternoon. The Leo Samro family is cleaning month of August. And the next Thursday, we'll gather at 7.30 for a service. And then next Sunday at 10.30. And again in the evening at 7. Next Sunday's collection will be for the benefit of Andy Olson, who continues to struggle with his health. Next Sunday's collection for the benefit of Andy Olson and his family. There'll also be a congregational meeting to discuss the possibility of services. In closing, today we'll sing song 580, and during the singing of this song we'll carry a feeble offering for the benefit of the church. Yes, Bernie. That is scheduled to occur in September. It's already on the agenda. We'll announce them two weeks beforehand. Thank you.